I used to be in a hair metal band, kind of along the lines of Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue. Obviously, didn't work out, didn't become a rock star, but it was good fun at the time. And actually, it taught me a lot about how to be attention-grabbing and memorable, which was good. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross. It's been a little while since I was with you. Uh, all I can put that down to is being extraordinarily busy with a whole range of work projects. But it's great to be back, and back we are with a bang and a treat. And to get us in the mood, I welcome this week the behavioural scientist Patrick Fagan, described by comedian David Mitchell as a mother superior in nipple tassels, each to their own, I suppose. He's also a former Cambridge Analytica man, if your minds can take you back to that scandal and time in history. More on that later. Moreover, Patrick is the author of Hooked, whose byline is Why Cute Sells and Other Marketing Magic We Just Can't Resist. And by the way, is soon to publish a new book called Free Your Mind, The New World of Manipulation and How to Resist It, in collaboration with Laura Dodsworth. You will pick up some old references in this conversation to our former PM, Boris Johnson, here, as this episode was recorded before he toppled. But that aside, all the chat is super relevant. And today we cover magic and creativity, political preference, why we get dressed, and of course, Patrick's book, Hooked. Please enjoy it. Patrick, welcome to A Load of BS. It's great to have you along today. Hi, great. Thank you for having me. It's my great pleasure. Now, Patrick, you are a behavioral scientist who works at the interface of technology and psychology. You're the chief science officer and co-founder at Capuchin Behavioral Science, working with advertisers principally to change audience behavior by understanding psychological makeup, by recognizing human biases and heuristics as a means to influence how people behave. So it seems to me this is work which focuses on how data can be used to predict personality, to read our minds, and then send targeted nudges. Now, this sounds rather like behavioral magic. I mean, are copywriters, brand managers, and creative directors queuing up for your services? Yes and no. So, I mean, creatives don't really like being told what to do as such. They don't like the idea of their magic being automated. And, you know, to be fair, creativity is all about a lack of structure. You know, creativity is about a little bit of randomness and magic and putting things together that don't go together. Like peanut butter is great and chocolate's great, but they took a genius, Reese, I assume, to put the two together and make something new and delicious. So I'm not sure you can automate that. But on the other hand, yes, when you do present the insights to creatives, creatives they generally love it i mean creative people really are interested in psychology and they can take the insights take these ingredients and turn them into something creative which is great to see but do you also observe that businesses are still suspicious of behavioral science you know the idea of a cheap simple and often counterintuitive intervention rather goes against the grain of conventional response to advertising challenges which might be something like you know spend more go bigger or play around with my audience targeting well, it's nuanced. I mean, uh, certainly things have changed a lot um, over the last 10 years or so. It used to be more or less this idea that people were rather rational and they wanted to build relationships with brands and so on. It's kind of changed and evolved, maybe even gone a bit too far the other way, but into this idea of people being more emotional and rational and, and liable to being nudged. And I wouldn't say businesses are really skeptical. I think they love it. And especially recently, they've seen the amazing power of nudging and, and behavioral science to change behavior. I think there is a bit of hype. There is a bit of man behind the curtain, you know, power from the illusion of power. It is maybe overhyped a little bit, but it's all about really what behavioral science does is gives you hypotheses to test. Sometimes they'll work and sometimes they won't, but the goal is to give you things to test and see if they'll work with your particular audience and context. And I think most people are open to that to that these days because technology and data is such that things can be implemented and tested very quickly. And so they should be. And that's absolutely right. Because actually, if we think about advertising impact, we already know that, you know, circa over 23 billion pounds is spent on all forms of advertising and marketing in the UK, of which 4% is remembered positively, 7% is remembered negatively, and 89% isn't noticed or remembered at all, or so yeah. the statistics say, which mm -hmm. suggests people believe it's better doing something rather than doing nothing. But I mean, why do you think advertisers and agencies keep pissing money away? I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I've heard a very similar statistic before. 
basically 84% of advertising, the ad and or the brand is not remembered. Those studies by necessity tend to be self-reports. Do people consciously remember the brand? And that's not always how these things work. You know, an advert can kind of seed an idea or, or slightly shift perceptions or something in your brain that you might not be consciously aware of. So there are these long-term kind of seeding and memory effects that ads can have. And I heard a great analogy that advertising is like the engines on an airplane. You notice it when it's not there. So it might not be that ads have a big sales impact, especially if you're a big brand already. It's kind of marginal gains that you can get. But once you stop doing it, then people basically forget about your brand. I kind of even find this myself. If I stop posting on LinkedIn, um, I stop getting so much business coming in. But then if I just do a, a post every now and then, it seems like people go, oh, yeah, I, I forgot about that guy. So I think, yeah, you might not get transformative effects, but it still keeps you at the front of mind somewhat. Exactly. You've got to keep the awareness maintained, at least in a drip feed manner. You wrote the book Hooked in 2016. That's a book about how to make advertising messages sticky and high impact, how to arouse people's attention, hold it and persuade them to behave in the way that we want. I really enjoyed the book, by the way, first to say, really enjoyable and, and instructive and, and rich in detail and content. But it's really a manual. It's a compendium of the tricks and nudges to adopt if you're looking to sell more toothpaste or, you know, indeed win a general election. So to take a leaf out of your own tales, I will grab everyone's attention and prick their curiosity and entice them to find out more about you by sharing that, of course, you used to work for Cambridge Analytica as their lead psychologist. Now, I'm going to try and ask a less obvious question and say, are you sick and tired of this badge on your CV or is it actually a nice icebreaker that you enjoy? It's a bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, a lot of people don't like the kind of people the company works for. And I will caveat by saying I worked in the commercial team, not the political team. I didn't see any Facebook data, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it can be a bit of a double-edged sword. But on the other hand, they were pioneering and there's a lot of mystique. And basically in social psychology, there's two dimensions, warmth and competence. And having that on my CV, I sacrificed perceptions of warmth, but increased perceptions of competence. Um, but having said that, I mean, in truth, it was really fairly run-of-the-mill digital marketing agency. I think the mystique and the perceived spookiness is a bit bigger than the reality, but they did do some very cool stuff and I learned a lot. I want to pick you up on that, but maybe just for those who don't remember, I think most people have an inkling who Cambridge Analytica are, but I mean, they shot in for me in 2018. It was revealed that they'd sort of unlawfully harvested millions of Facebook user profiles as a means to influence political elections, and it was sort of specifically around the Trump campaign in 2016, but there were others. But to pick up on the point you just made, you know, was actually the whole scandal rather overblown? Were they a scapegoat for what many others were already doing? Yeah, I think so, in a way. I mean, obviously, I'm biased, but I think certainly targeted advertising based on personality is not anything new. Actually, based on personalities is probably the new bit. And it's also partly the bit people didn't like because it kind of felt like psychological manipulation. But taking people's data and using that for targeted advertising is not new. It was used by other political campaigns as well. But rightly or wrongly, I don't really have any opinion anymore either way, but rightly or wrongly, people didn't really like Trump. And so the idea that they use this to get Trump or help Trump get into office, I think, is what people kind of viscerally responded to the most. But also, of course, you know, taking people's data without their permission is not good. And I don't condone that in any way. Exactly. I think maybe I wonder if it weren't for the fact that the CEO, Alexander Nix, had boasted about you know, uh, yeah. bribery and prostitutes <laughs> influ influence elections yeah. and then showed minimal contrition under question. Maybe they could have survived if it weren't for that. But I mean, that's uh, that that speculation. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, are companies like yours now having to think about the ethics of customer data very differently? I mean, did the scandal meaningfully change the way behavioral consultancies operate or was Cambridge Analytica sort of an outlier? Absolutely. I've seen that for sure. I mean, even just sending out personality tests to customers, companies are quite reticent to do that now. And of course, this all came out around the time of GDPR anyway, and the emergence, at least seriously, of the ICO. So there was this kind of wave anyway, which is good. Uh, people definitely should have awareness of what's being done with their data and control over it. But yeah, brands are very kind of careful to do the right thing, in my experience. Yeah. I mean, maybe let's cut to the chase of actually what was going on. And despite the inverted, these sort of crimes, in inverted commas, I mean, generally speaking, how effective are targeted social media ads in persuading people to do things? It's mixed. So there's some academic research saying it works and some academic research saying it has no effect. 
likewise, in my experience, sometimes it works very well and sometimes the, the jury's still out. So, you know, with anything really, it's nuanced and beware of anyone who promises a silver bullet. But I think it depends on a lot of things. So it depends on how are you measuring and collecting personality in the first place? How good are your models? How good is your targeting of people based on these groups? Is there, a, you know, an accurate kind of model, an accurate link between the segments that you have and then actually finding those people, say, on Instagram through targeting certain interests and so on? And then crucially also, there's the making the messages to appeal to different people because you might find that, okay, I'm KFC and I know that my most valuable customers are really extroverted to say. A lot of people don't know really what to do with that. I mean, even with classic segmentations, okay, KFC, they're young and cool. But what does that mean actually for how you talk to them? Like what language did you use, what images, what words? So that's a bridge I've been trying to gap. But there's all these bits of noise and potential for interference that can get in the way. So I think, yes, it's effective. Has it changed the face of modern democracy? No, I don't think so. Not yet. But as with any technology, it is just getting more sophisticated over time. I mean, Cambridge Analytica or not, you know, obviously a fair bit about political voting works. I mean, from your experience, what are the factors that influence how we vote? And, you know, what factors do we tend to overestimate? You know, are there sort of personality traits which influence political preference? Yeah, absolutely. There are. I mean, the most basic way that personality influences politics is this kind of left-right continuum. Obviously, you know, what's left and what's right changes a lot. And that whole thing has become maybe a little less meaningful over the last few years. But basically, do you want things to stay the same or do you want things to change? And so people who are progressive tend to be open to new experience. They're more tolerant of ambiguity. They, you know, more likely to like jokes with ambiguous punchlines or films with ambiguous endings, or listen to jazz and so on, read philosophy books. I'm sure you're aware of Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, but they're more, as I remember, concerned with like social justice and fairness and caring about other people. Whereas on the other side of the spectrum, it's kind of the opposite. So instead of being tolerant of ambiguity and open to new things, they're more about kind of what's familiar, they're interested in structure and hierarchy and competition, and they're more about group loyalty and tradition and so on. So that shows you, you know, for example, who wants more tax to help other people versus who wants less tax because they feel competitive and like life is in their own hands, or who's open to immigration because they're open to new things and versus who's close to it because they're more about group loyalty. And there's nothing right or wrong about being either side of the spectrum, and most people lie somewhere in between. But I, I would say that's basically how personality influences things. And then there's obviously all sorts of nudges as well. Yeah, I mean, my sense is, and please feel free to knock this down because I say this without great sort of statistical empirical backup, but more people than not have a status quo bias in politics, which is to say that actually, despite that they may claim that they are seeking our politicians to come out with a clear mandate or to make great change, more people than not actually like things when they sort of stay fairly steady and uneventful. And then actually, you know, politicians make a rod for their own back. They feel this need that they've got to come out and say something rather punchy, or you can then become rather sort of divisive and controversial. I don't know whether you've seen any effects of status quo bias in your uh, kind of political experience. Well, interestingly, in one piece of work I did, I asked this question of like, do you want things to stay as they are now? Or do you want to go back to how things were five years ago, 10 years ago? Or do you want things to keep progressing as they are for another five years, for another 10 years? And nobody, or not nobody, but very few people actually want things to stay as they are now, socially. I think most people would agree things kind of suck at the minute and have done for a while um is so the difference really is between are you nostalgic for the past and you want to go backwards versus do you want to go forwards but status quo bias in general is definitely a thing i mean most people are afraid of change to a certain extent it's scary and unpredictable and so in particular when things are chaotic and uncertain and predictable as they are now people tend to look more for i don't know if it's about left versus right but they look for kind of power or they look for stability they look for a leader or a party or promise that can offer some kind of structure to the chaos. I mean, talking of nudges and, you know, jokes with ambiguous punchlines, you know, would you categorise the, quote, £350 million a week back to the NHS Brexit bus slogan as an effective nudge or is it an unethical lie? To be honest, I don't know enough about the numbers and I think it's very hard to kind of get to the truth of anything these days. So probably, I don't know if I'd call it a lie, but 
probably as with most things in politics, it was designed to elicit an emotional response and to nudge people. Well answered, a d- diplomatic <laughs> response, putting, putting you completely unfairly on the spot, but I, I couldn't resist since you talked about jokes with ambiguous punchlines. In the book, you talk about the peak end rule, which says that both the end of an experience and its emotional peak will define how it's remembered. Now, holiday memories are quite typical of this, but in the political sphere, mm-hmm. I presume this is what Boris Johnson is relying on in Partygate to save him. In other words, you know, the longer it drifts, the more we'll get distracted. And would the research back that up? Would it suggest that he's going to survive based on this? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely the recency effect. Well, I don't know if he's going to survive. I, I think he will. He always seems to. He seems to have survived worse because, well, I suppose it's the warmth versus competence thing again. I mean, maybe not doing very well on the competence side, but he's always very warm. And I guess maybe even counterintuitively, Partygate kind of makes him seem as this affable, friendly guy who likes to have a party. Maybe, you know, in a weird way, it might be working in his favour. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. I think the recency effect, I think he's just trying to dither and delay as long as possible because all of us do have short memories and we'll move on to something else. Yeah, I mean, actually, on the same subject in the book, you also go through Robert Cialdini's Principles of Persuasion and Under Commitment and Consistency. And I got a quote here because it just popped into my head, just absolutely related to this subject. You say, people hate inconsistency. Psychological research has shown, for example, that people will feel giddy with schadenfreude if they catch someone doing an immoral act, which that person had previously criticized others for doing. It seems this principle is written for our prime minister, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. I also use the example of the Liberal Democrats who said that they would reduce tuition fees or get rid of tuition fees. And then when they were voted in, to be fair, in a minority coalition, but when they were voted in, the government tripled tuition fees. And I don't think their voting intentions have really recovered since then. Yeah, that was the change of heart, which really kind of crippled Nick Clegg and the party, Mm. unfortunately for them. Now, let's get to the heart of the book because it hangs off 10 psychological principles for crafting effective communications, which group then into three categories. So firstly, you've got to grab people's attention. Then you've got to get them thinking about your message. And finally, you've got to influence behavior in some way. You've got to incite some action. So do you want to bring these categories to life a bit more and then tell us where does a business start in unpacking it all to meet their own comms challenges? Uh, Yeah, so the first thing you need to do, as you said, is grab people's very limited attention spans, which is true now more than ever. You know, we're bombarded with information constantly and our tiny puny mate brains can't process everything. There is a statistic and, you know, it's very much a guess and an estimate, but the researcher found there are 11 million sensory neurons firing in the brain every second, but only 40 of these go through conscious pathways. So by that estimate, only 0.0004% of the world we are consciously aware of. There's all sorts of nice studies on inattentional blindness, like people will miss a gorilla walking across the screen, or they won't see a clown on a unicycle as they're walking through a park, particularly if they're talking to someone on their phone at the time. So there's only so much that we can pay attention to in the world, really tiny slice of it. However, there is a network of regions in the brain that acts as a kind of bouncer. It's called the brain's bouncer, and it decides what to let into our conscious awareness. So if you're at, say, a noisy cocktail party, and imagine your name is Bob, and there's all sorts of noise and conversations, but then across the room you hear someone say, you know, I can't really stand Bob. Uh, You would hear that conversation even though you weren't actively listening to it. And interestingly, even though Bob comes at the end of the sentence. So your brain is processing every conversation at very low level. And then the bouncer decides what to let into your conscious awareness. And so the bouncer has a VIP list uh, of things that you will instantly pay attention to, like your own name. But there's some other things as well. So let's say a spider or a snake, because they could have evolutionary value or a baby or something cute that looks like a baby because, again, there's evolutionary value in paying attention to our vulnerable offspring. This is why many adverts will have puppies and kittens and talking meerkats and so on. Or indeed the front cover of your book. Yes, or a nice cute little pug. Then there's a few things in general. So there's personal, there's emotional, and it doesn't have to be pugs, but it can be emotional words. You know, Put the word love in an email subject line, it'll probably do better. Put an emoji in there and it'll do better. There's surprising things. So surprising can be either physiological in nature. So this is just movement and noise. 
putting animations on a website, that kind of thing. And the other type of surprise is more banana in nature. So this is things that are creative, unexpected, unusual. Like just now I said banana, which makes no sense. So potentially your brain kind of peaked a bit to try and work out what I meant. So that's anything, you know, modern art, a bit weird or different. By the way, Patrick, there's a very helpful editing trick now that you can adopt for any future writing, which is that any typos or errors you can put down to psychological trickery and it was yeah. totally, totally intentional. What are you questioning me for? Of course, banana was meant to be there. <laughs> that's great tip. Thank you. And then the final thing is what I call primal, which I call the three Fs, food, faces and sex. Usually takes people a minute to get that the third F. But again, anything with evolutionary value will pay attention to. So that's the first thing is how do you stop people's thumbs from scrolling and to actually quickly get grabbed by your content? And then once you have their attention, you need to keep them engaged, keep them hooked and, and make it sticky. And there's three ways of doing that. The first is through kind of curiosity, mystery, intrigue. So this is why, for example, people still care about Jack the Ripper or Madeleine McCann all these years later, because there's a mystery. There's something that we have yet to figure out. And when there's a gap in our understanding, it kind of causes cognitive dissonance, which is a bit painful psychologically, so it motivates us to find out the answer. For example, there was one study that used what's called the mystery motivator to get kids to stay in bed. So if your kids weren't staying in bed at night, what they did was they had like a mystery box and they said, if you stay in bed all night, you can have a secret prize from this box, but you won't find out what it is till the morning. So we're motivated to resolve mysteries. There's all sorts of ways that you can do this. Like you tweeted, you could have a blank email subject line. You could use rhetorical questions. Adverts generally use this by using metaphors, by presenting something that's surreal and doesn't quite make sense, but requires you to decode it to form the message in your own mind. The second way to be sticky is through fluency. So this is really about being simple and concrete and short. For example, for better or for worse, probably for worse, a politician will have more luck talking about a wall than they will talking about a complex immigration policy because a wall is visual, it's literally concrete, it's much easier for people to deal with psychologically. Hands face space is another great example because they didn't say hygiene, they said hands, and they didn't say social distancing, they said space. So it's very visual, short, simple things. And then quickly, the final way of keeping people hooked and making it sticky is through stories, because stories make us kind of empathetically experience information rather than just seeing it superficially. So if you see a story about someone who's really thirsty and it's causing them all sorts of conflict and trouble, how thirsty they are, and then they drink a Coca-Cola and that quenches their thirst, you have that three-act story, which uses suspense and mystery to keep people engaged, but also people empathize with that guy and they feel his thirst and they feel the quenching of his thirst so it's just much more effective way of making something memorable and then finally the third part is about nudging behavior and so this is essentially number one making it memorable because there's usually a somewhat significant time gap between seeing the message and the desired behavioral effect you know you don't see a coca-cola advert and then leap up from the sofa and go out and buy coca-cola so it needs to be memorable and that again is about being emotional and surprising and repetition etc and then finally frame the information in a way that's going to nudge people so if you're mcdonald's you can say a billion people served and people go oh a billion people it must be good i, I can trust it i'll buy it Thanks for that. It's a really clear and helpful precy of the stages that you walk us through in the book. I mean, you started by referencing this, you know, the 11 million bits of sensory information that we process every second. I think that's research from a sort of social psychologist, Timothy Wilson, which you reference. I mean, that sort of implies only 40 of those are processed consciously are the part of the story, which you mentioned, which means, of course, that the vast majority of processing is happening in the unconscious mind. And perhaps I don't know whether this is a fair question, but if that's so, I mean, how on earth, firstly, do we concentrate on anything? I mean, it seems even by following your rules, the odds are just massively stacked against any communication mm -hmm. cutting through, right? Yeah. So first of all, I should say it's an estimate. It's one person's estimate. I've seen, you know, depending on how you measure it and who you ask, it, it ranges. The highest I've seen is like a third of it is conscious or, you know, a third of shopping is planned in advance of going in the store and etc. So it is an estimate. And it's also that one is about sensory information. So it's not necessarily your thought and what you're able to concentrate on. But also there's research on working memory. There's the magic number plus or minus seven that says we can only hold seven bits of information in our head at any one time. So it is limited. I think there's pretty big consensus there that what we can concentrate on and think about is limited. However, we can, of course, do amazing rational 
rational things. People can design skyscrapers and write screenplays and write poetry and all this fantastic stuff, invent smartphones. But it's just, I think, in the day-to-day you know, going around Sainsbury's doing your shopping or doing some online shopping, the vast majority of that, people are not going to be using their limited brain power. So it probably depends on context. You know, we only have so much energy. We can use it to concentrate on things, but by and large, we don't because we need to save it for that context. My reading of the book was you're talking about, you're advising how brands create more immediate impact versus at least getting sort of remembered in the long run. And there's certainly a difference between inciting an action versus mm-hmm. making a long-lasting emotional connection. Of course, you say that consumers are cognitive misers. I don't know if that's your term or <laughs> someone else's, but nevertheless, no, it makes no. a lot of sense. We spend very little time thinking or caring about brands. You know, so you know, the most important thing is therefore, you know, you've got to get inside people's heads. You've got to be easy to buy. And you sort of summarize some of the ways that we can do that just now. But if that is the case, if we're cognitive misers, how do brands then build loyalty beyond immediate impact? Well, I personally think that it's still the same principles. So the things that will make something have high penetration, so make it easy for everyone to buy and attractive for everyone to buy, also make it easy and attractive for someone to buy it multiple times. So let's say Waitrose open a shop just next to your home. You will now become a Waitrose shopper because it's easy, but you'll also go there multiple times a week. So you'll become loyal as well. So yeah, just putting it very simply, I think it's still the same principles of being easy and attractive. Let me pick you up also on stories, because of course, the best communications, as you say, tend to tell stories. I think intuitively, you know, we get that stories give meaning and structure to the way we share information. But I wanted to take a common business example, and maybe you'll have a view on this, because many of us spend so much of our working lives drowning in dense sort of PowerPoint waffle and jargon. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether you had any tips or experience in how we can use stories to improve our business presentations and communications. I thought that would be a relevant example to many listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I always try and do, if you watch a movie, very often it will start with kind of a a fight or a car chase or something that's fairly incidental to the plot because they want to suck you in immediately. So I don't know, if you watch a Mission Impossible film, it will open up with uh, Ethan Hunt clinging to the side of a plane. So you need to have this immediate kind of bam to kind of draw people in. So start the presentation with something emotional, surprising, whatever, just to immediately grab people's attention. And there's these various kind of attention principles that can keep people focused, make sure you have movement, and lots of images in the slides and images of emotional things or pictures of faces. Have as little text as possible and keep things concrete and try not to be too abstract and rational. But in terms of a like a story, yeah, first of all, suck people in with this prologue, as it were. Then you can set the scene a bit, but then present people with your second act, which is a conflict or a tension, something that is new or conflicts with their previous beliefs or you're not sure what the answer is and then you can end your so-called third act where you say what the answer is and what the new kind of insight is that's cool i have to say i have been also testing out some of your attention grabbing techniques in my work with my emails i have tried the leave the subject line empty i think i need a bigger sample size to really sort of test it the one that i have used in the past which works quite well when i've struggled to get people's attention is that i put for example is patrick still alive um, in the subject line that actually tends to have quite a good effect in a binary way which is that either people find it rather obnoxious which Mm. is fine but then it sort of kills off the opportunity quite quickly or indeed people kind of find it quite precocious and charming and endearing and so they write back and say well i wouldn't have replied but since you ask i am still here and i have also sort of shifted my emphasis from liking to loving far more so see how that goes just show a bit more sort of commitment to wanting to do something i'd love to do something rather than just liking to i get a a lot of these kind of emails with the subject line like my wife left me and then it says for the weekend so i decided to write this email it's annoying but it, it did work i got me reading it Yeah, exactly. I mean, you make this point also, by the way, in the book in different ways, which is that you don't need to be liked, you Mm. need to be remembered, which is the same principle. Um, And also Seth Godin, the marketing guru, he he wrote a book on tribes where he says, you know, it's not always a bad thing to alienate people, you know, know who your customers are and also who they aren't. I guess it's risky, but not always bad necessarily to put people off if they're not into the content or the tone. Absolutely. I mean, I think about that with my own podcast, by the way, you know, I'd rather have a core set of fans who really love what I do than, you know, lots of ambivalent people. Now, one of the criticisms of books like yours is that they are nudge shops, right? In other words, a shopping list of heuristics and interventions illustrated 
by isolated experiments. Mm. Now, how do we help organizations translate the theory into the real world? Well, you know, what are the broad lessons that organizations can apply to start to sort of successfully replicate, translate, and scale the many experiments that you reference, mm. apart from hiring you? <laughs> well, ideally hire me and uh, you can find me at patrickfagan.co.uk if you want to reach out. No, there's really only one lesson, I think, which is test. And I suppose there's a bit more nuance to that, which is first of all, to do a bit of research to find out really who your customers are and what they're like psychologically and what the purchase context is. For example, fairly well accepted that social proof and scarcity are effective nudges. But if you're selling luxury handbags, you don't want to use social proof and say millions of people have this handbag. Whereas if you're selling beans, nobody really cares about a limited edition can of beans, but they'll buy the one that everyone else likes. So, so it really does depend and you need to kind of literally go and talk to your customers. I mean, ideally you do it in a sophisticated way, but just talking to them in the first place is good. And then to get some hypotheses on what you think would work or not. And then secondly, really, really important to test it and see what does work or not. One of the first projects I ever worked on back when I was an intern was for a telecoms provider in the UK who had as their mascot a famous cartoon mouse who is very fast and Mexican. And we recommended that the company put the mouse on their envelopes of the direct mail because the mouse is familiar and emotional, so grab attention. In the end, it was one of the worst performing direct mail campaigns I've ever done. And a bit of follow-up research found that people saw the cartoon mouse on it and assumed it wasn't serious. They assumed it was spam, so they didn't even bother opening it. So you really have to test. You can have these ideas ideas, you can have this shopping list of nudges, but you won't know what works until you try it. Yeah, and within all that, I think one of the obvious translation issues is context, right? And I think this yeah. is implicit in what you're saying, you know, from the academic lab to the real messy world, you know, you're dealing with different demographics, it's different yeah. timing, it's a different setting, you know, you've got all sorts of different motivations at play, it's a far less clean environment. So I think the point is, and it's test and iterate and be patient, as you say, but just that, you know, bring to life the sort of projects that you work on, what are the typical exam questions that you're answering for clients? How are you helping them build consumer profiles? Or how do brands then apply them to their challenges? So a couple of the typical exam questions are who should we be talking to and how should we be talking to them? which is essentially a segmentation, but psychologically and also done starting with the end in mind. So it's not really all that helpful to find out that your most valuable segment is young men living in the city because First of all, I'm a youngish man living in the city and I know other young men living in the city are completely different to me. So I staying in and reading books, they like going out and clubbing. So there's a lot more nuance to it, which psychological segmentation can help with. But also this segment, young men living in the city, they're great, but so what? What messaging will they respond to? What do they like about the brand? And what nudges are most likely to influence them? So that's what that's the kind of thing I work on is these psychological segmentations, which involve measuring nudges as best as possible, measuring messaging preferences, what kind of aesthetics they like, what kind of language and wording to give like actionable psychological segmentations to clients. Then a second exam question is, how can I increase X behavior? Usually, you know, downloads in an app store or getting people to open emails and click on them, etc. And that's usually fairly standard kind of nudge optimizations, ideally with some research again to understand the context and the audience and make sure we're testing the right nudges, but ultimately recommending what interventions to use and helping them design a testing plan to see what works or not. And then the third one, the final one is kind of proposition development. So let's say you've developed a new healthy soft drink. What are the kind of nuggets, the Sigmund Freud, Edward Bernays kind of symbolism and archetypes to use that are going to resonate deeply with people when you're branding this product? And maybe it's a question of testing and refinement, but then how accurate and generalizable are the consumer profiles you build? Well, they're not generalizable in terms of their specific to each client and they're, di they're always different people that we go and talk to. On the other hand, you do find some fairly consistent things, like you'll usually find a segment who's quite enthusiastic, younger, more urbane, they're nudged by coolness and exclusivity. You typically find a segment that's a bit older, more price conscious and like sensible, competent brands. But to your question of accurate and generalizability, that's a good one. And I'm not sure I've tested it. I mean, much of the research obviously is all we talk about, you know, personality types, how we're reading people constantly, right. how to communicate with them. I mean, how do our interests sort of infer our behavior and personality? And let me just sort of contextualize that. You say, for example, that sweet people 
by nature yeah. like sweet foods and vice versa. So you say, yeah. you know, people who like dark chocolate and gin tend to be blunter and angrier. Firstly, how do we know this and mm-hmm. what on earth is going on in the brain? And then I suppose the follow on is, you know, what are therefore the messaging implications of that? Yeah, that's an interesting example because that's one of those findings that sometimes is replicated and sometimes not. So that particular one might be a reliability crisis finding. But generally speaking, how we know it is because of the big five personality traits, which are very robust and generally a good example of consensus in psychology. Most people generally agree that this construct measures your personality, more or less. I mean, there are other things as well, but more or less it captures someone's personality. And because we have that consensus, there's loads of research on the big five. So there's research on how the big five links to what people eat and drink. For example, extroverts are more likely to enjoy, obviously, stimulating food. I think they salivate more. You give them a drop of lemon. And I think they like spicier foods and they like fatty and sweet foods. Just they like kind of sensation. The bitter thing, I mean, yes, they found that dark traits are associated with liking bitter foods. A replication didn't replicate it. But there's other studies, as I said, finding that eating sweet foods makes you more agreeable. That one seems fairly robust, I think. So I think there's a nugget of truth in there somewhere. Clarify what you mean first about the big five, just for those who aren't uh, familiar. So the big five is essentially five personality traits, which have emerged from decades of research, where researchers have basically taken the dictionary, it's called the lexical approach, and assumed that any trait a human being has is available in language. So if it exists, we will have come up with a label for it in language. So they took the dictionary, got people to rate themselves on all of these words, and then they used statistical analyses, principal components analyses, to see how these words cluster together. So if somebody says that they are happy they'll also say that they're outgoing and active etc and so there's an underlying variable there which is extroversion and so they've boiled down the dictionary into these five traits which have the acronym ocean o is openness to experience which is about being kind of creative philosophical etc c is conscientiousness which is about being organized and reliable and hardworking. there's extroversion which is about being positive and outgoing and sensation seeking there's a for agreeableness which is about being warm and cooperative and trusting and finally n neuroticism which is about being kind of sensitive to potential threats and there's nothing wrong with being high or low on any of these traits by the way i mean you think You'd want to be agreeable, but Socrates was pretty disagreeable. He was miserable and argued with everyone, and he had an amazing impact on the world. So whatever your personality is, it it will definitely have strengths as well as weaknesses. Now, clothing is, of course, one of the most obvious superficial ways that we identify and present ourselves. So whether you take the Zuckerberg jobs approach or perhaps Lady Gaga at the other end of the extreme, why do we dress the way we do? And how does it impact the way we then behave? How does it affect how others, in fact, perceive us? Well, we dress for two reasons. One is functional, so to stay warm, etc. But the other is communicative, so to signal certain things. So, for example, a tie or a pocket square have no functional reason, really. I mean, maybe they did, you know, use the handkerchief. But now they don't. It's a communicative thing. So people want to communicate certain things about themselves. And so what they want to communicate tells you about their personality. So if they want to communicate that they support a particular political cause, that tells you something about who they are. If they're wearing a certain T-shirt or badge pin, or if they wear high-end luxury brands, that tells you something about you know their need for status and their image consciousness. But also there's cues which are less deliberate. These are more incidental cues, which are just reflected in what they're like, what their character is like. So if somebody wears shabby old clothes or they don't polish their shoes, etc., they're probably less conscientious because they're less organized. If somebody wears a lot of bright colors, they're probably extroverted. And that's because extroverts like stimulation and excitement. So we're talking here about principally how personality traits and cues are predictive and of certain types of behavior. But how predictive is actually sort of real online behavior, actual buying habits? You know, what does the research show there? Yeah, it shows fairly predictive. It shows it's fairly good. There's a few studies showing if we look at personality that computers can predict personality or at least self-reported personality better than can humans. And there was one study that found an algorithm using Facebook likes could predict personality better than friends, 
someone you live with, someone you work with, or a family member, the only person who knows you better is your spouse. If the algorithm has the average number of Facebook likes, which is 200 or something, or was at the time. So they seem to be pretty accurate, yes. But obviously, as I said earlier, it does depend a lot on you know what data went into them, how they were built, are they generalizable, etc. So they're not perfect and it varies from algorithm to algorithm, but they can be pretty good and they're getting better all the time. And there's a conventional wisdom now that revealed preferences are preferable than stated ones. What's the balance in the research process between seeking stated versus revealed? In other words, talking to people versus just observing them. You know, what what are the strengths and weaknesses of each approach? I would say both are valuable in different ways. I mean, as a kind of parallel way of thinking, if you look at system one and system two measures, so survey questions versus reaction time measures, the best predictive power of future behavior comes from measuring both rather than one of them on its own. And there was one study that found that if you've measured personality through self-report, that's good at predicting kind of habitual things, like how often people go to art museums, you can predict by measuring openness to experience in the traditional way. Whereas if you want to predict how angry someone will get in the moment, if you do something annoying to them, then the self-report agreeableness isn't very good, but using a reaction time measure is. So it's probably, I would imagine the same here, that they're both kind of measuring different things, but the best predictive power comes from both. Um, Usually in practice, it's more of a kind of practical thing at the minute. The data as it stands often isn't rich enough and the model's not yet sophisticated enough just to use revealed data by itself. You know, unless you're like Facebook or Halifax or Spotify, then yeah, okay, you probably have data that's good enough to predict personality without asking. So there's that practical concern. But on the other hand, it's difficult to get people to fill in a personality test. So sometimes you have to just rely on the data as it is. But currently, it's like, ideally, you would send a test because that's the best way for now of measuring personality is to get that ground truth from the horse's mouth. But moving forward, as we get more data and the analysis is more sophisticated, I wouldn't bother asking people. I would just use the data. You mentioned system one, system two at the start of that response. Can you just contextualize what you mean by that for those who aren't familiar with that terminology? Assuming that, I mean, you're referring here to a system one, a sort of rapid, automated, unconscious process versus a more sort of thoughtful, analytical, slower thinking. Yeah, exactly. So there's, in very simple terms, these two ways of making decisions, these two parts of the brain, even one of them, emotional, intuitive, quick, system one, which has been around for a long time. It's tried and tested. It's efficient. So we can use it for most of our day-to-day decisions and interactions without using a lot of energy. Whereas you have system two, which is rational and logical and evolutionarily newer, does some very advanced things like empathizing, thinking about the future, thinking in abstract terms, but that requires a lot of energy to use. So we can't use it quite so much. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, the brain does not have a system one and a system two in in real terms. It's a framework for thinking. Yeah. They both kind of work together. You can't really have one without the other. Absolutely. I wanted to talk about unintended consequences because it's known, for example, that you know reducing plane travel after 9-11 resulted in more car crashes and news mourning celebrity suicides tends to increase suicides attempts. Yeah. And, you know, as regards actually road fatalities, Jonathan Hall and Joshua Madsen have just published a paper in Science Magazine highlighting that highway signs displaying traffic death statistics in Texas don't prevent car crashes. In fact, they may slightly increase them because mm-hmm. they are going back to your book. They were distracting attention from the job in hand, driving safely. To what extent do you take into account unintended consequences of nudges in your work and how do you manage it? Again, it's about testing, but it is difficult because I believe there was a study where they used the watching eyes effect and they put up pictures of eyes around, I don't know, train stations or something to reduce bicycle thefts. And bicycle thefts went down significantly in that area, but in the neighboring area, they went up by the same amount. So yeah, you have to test and collect data as much as possible, but that data might be outside your field of awareness. So I don't know if there's a way to really take it into account because you're not going to know until it's done. I suppose also if you're understanding the personality and the context of your nudges is going to be a bit more nuanced. So if you have an audience that maybe is a bit more rebellious, they might show reactance to being told what to do. So you might want to use a fancy term for it called strategic anti-conformity, I think. What's that in English? Reverse psychology. Right. Figure out what you want people to do, 
tell them to do the opposite and then they'll end up doing what you want them to do. If they're of a particular personality type, you don't like being told yeah. what to do. Vote Donald Trump, folks. Um, <laughs> of course, by the way, this is what sort of happened in the Texas highway signs scenario, which is the Texas authorities who had put those signs up really refused to relieve the evidence, which was correlative. I mean, there was not specific causation there, but it was very indicative. And I think it took a long time before they removed the signs. I suppose there was a rather sort of sunk cost to that. Also, to go back to your, your clip, I think... I wouldn't discount the effect of how like this intense barrage of being told don't vote for Donald Trump. If you like him, you're an idiot, you're a bad person, etc. That may have actually galvanized his base and, and made him then more likely to vote. Exactly. I mean, there are sort of similar parallels with Brexit. You know, the more that you're sort of the, the establishment is persuading you of a particular argument, the more it uh, galvanizes you to do the exact opposite, whether that becomes self-sabotaging or not. Let me ask you a last question before we go on to the bit you've been looking forward to most, which is the quick fire round. What really excites you about the future of your work? You know, where do you see the new big opportunities? Interesting. I can answer what worries me. Oh, please do. You can twist the question by all means. I can then move on to that into a more optimistic view. I, am, I do worry about just how powerful this stuff can get, particularly with always on data. And if you think about people entering the metaverse and having neural links in their brain, I mean, in theory, you can literally read and change people's minds directly at the source. And it's a very kind of big and concerning questions around, do we have a soul? Do we have free will? All this kind of stuff, which people are starting to talk about now. And also the power that behavioral science mixed with this always on technology will give to states and businesses. You see, for example, the trucker protest in Canada, whether you support it or not, it's a huge thing that they had their bank accounts switched off because they were dissidents, basically. And so that obviously is a very extreme example, but things like that could happen in the future where you could be nudged this way and that. If you're eating too many cookies and donuts, then Sainsbury's, as part of their socially conscious initiative, might try and nudge you out of it and not let you buy any cookies and donuts that day. So I think it's really, really important, you know, ethically to make sure people still have autonomy and are able to opt out of things. They're able to be anonymous in this new world if they want to be. They're able to choose to eat cookies and donuts if they want to. But more optimistically, what I'm looking forward to is people becoming more psychologically resilient and kind of a bit more conscious of things. I'm seeing this, maybe it's just my echo chamber, but people starting to turn off the TV a bit more, use the internet a bit less, go out for walks and read books and just kind of get away from this bombardment of information and emotion and nudges. You know, obviously I'm not discounting nudges. It's you know, a great tool for many reasons, but just to be constantly bombarded with them. I think there is a nice kind of counter trend of, of people starting to accept uh, their own behavioral responsibility and uplift their consciousness a bit. I think that's very exciting. Also, obviously, from a selfish point of view, I'm very excited about all this data that we can collect and find out about people and learn all of these amazing new things about how people think and act and behave from this data we can collect and the tools we have to analyze it. I think it's a very, very exciting time. I think we do just need to be a bit wary of the power that we'll have from it. I like that answer. I should say I love that answer a lot. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think when it comes to what a good nudge is, it needs to reinforce better choices. It needs to enhance well-being. It's not about compulsion. And, you know, there is this interesting question about the regulation of BS in the private sector or otherwise. And there's a sort of a fine line, as you say. The subject, I, mean, I said it was the last question, I'm going on a bit here, but on the subject of social media, then there is this question of how we curb our obsession with it and its associated manipulative effects. Or, you know, we have to ask the question, are the platforms to blame for hoodwinking us? Or is it you know, our responsibility to moderate our usage? And you make the point, maybe sometimes we need to sort of stand back from technology and get out into the real world. It's a tricky one. Yeah, I think ultimately it's everyone's own responsibility and everyone's on their own kind of journey of growth and discovery, their own personal life path. So I'd be a bit wary of saying the social media platforms have to do this or that whichever way it is, you know, whether it's Elon Musk or anyone else saying, I think it's an individual personal responsibility. And if everyone was able to make their own choices, I kind of believe in the power of complex systems working things out for themselves, but maybe yeah. I'm being naive. And then also, you know, the more now you talked about technology and data, the more now that businesses like yours are dealing with vast swathes of it, you know, you've got to collect it, you've got to interpret it, you've got to act upon it. And there's all the sort of the ethics and sensitivity around that. I mean, maybe it's a huge question to say, what are the challenges for all those different stages of the process? But I suppose suffice to say that you are thinking about those challenges on a daily basis. 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's not dive into that now, because I think that's a whole other rabbit hole. But shall we do some quick fire? Okay. Don't get too excited about it. Instead of quick fire, I might call it slow considered careful fire depending on what the questions are (laughs) fine exactly kill me slowly okay what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you this is silly when i was very ill on holiday once my mother took really good care of me and i suppose that's what mothers do but that just sticks in my mind when i think of the kindest thing someone's done tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know I used to be in a hair metal band, kind of along the lines of Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue. Obviously, didn't work out, didn't become a rock star, but it was good fun at the time. And actually, it taught me a lot about how to be attention-grabbing and memorable, which was good. So are you available on Spotify? You didn't make it that far. We were on MySpace, I suppose, which was uh, Spotify of the time. Yeah. Which book do you gift most regularly? My own, because I'm a shameless self-publicist. Apart from your own. You know, I don't know if there's one I gift consistently, but I do recommend The Shallows, uh, which is a fantastic book, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. Who's that by? Nicholas, I can't remember, Nicholas somebody. Fine. Search The Shallows by Nicholas somebody. We shall find it. What's your Desert Island music? You're not allowed to say your own. Probably The Eagles. Great. Finally, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? Doing emails. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I like to read, really, and maybe watch some trash TV with my wife. Yeah. And indeed, all being well, once you have your first child, that answer will take mm. care of itself. Yeah. Uh, so, look, with that, Patrick, let me thank you hugely for joining me today. It's been fascinating getting under the skin of what makes us all tick. I think it's fair to say for most of us, we're simply unaware of how much our personality is driving the decisions we make on a daily basis at an unconscious level. And so, to my listeners, if you want the crib sheet on grabbing a attention, holding it and changing behavior, then buy Patrick's book, Hooked, or indeed get in touch with him. Where's the best place to do that, Patrick, to remind us? Probably have a look on LinkedIn, or I do have a website, patrickfagan.co.uk. Perfect. So, Patrick, thank you so much for sharing so much insight with us today. Thank you. Loads of tips and tricks in this episode to take you back into the real world, or to take back into the real world, rather. I really hope you enjoyed all of that with Patrick. Next week, we welcome Dr. Grace Lordan, who is Associate Professor at the London School of Economics, and we'll be discussing her very personal and engaging book, Think Big, Take Small Steps, and Build a Career You Want, which uses behavioural science to give really practical advice about, amongst other things, how to ask for pay rises, get promoted, and change careers. So see you next time with Grace. And if you do like the show, which I hope you do since you're still here, please do subscribe and follow me wherever you listen. Thank you until the next time.